1: Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies. I'm Daniel Ryan Morse, an assistant professor of English at the University of Nevada, Reno. I'm joined today by Greg Barnisil, an associate professor at Duquesne University. Barnisil's new book, Cold War Modernists, Art, Literature, and American Cultural Diplomacy, was just published by Columbia University Press. Cold War Modernists examines how modernism was defanged, repackaged, and resold during the Cold War. From its incendiary beginnings, modernism was made safe for the bourgeois West thanks to the intervention of unlikely collaborators like the CIA, the Department of State, and even major corporations. Barnes's extensive archival research unearthed the thinking that went into the repurposing of modernism to support American Cold War ideology. So, Greg, welcome to New Books and Literary Studies, and congratulations on your new book, Cold War Modernists.
0: Thanks, I really appreciate you uh, having
1: me on. It's a, it's a pleasure. So, before we get to some of the details of the book and review some of the chapters, I wanted to ask you about research, because this is a book of in-depth archival research. So I was wondering if you could describe, you know, what, what did you go into these archives looking for? And, you know, what did you find in the end? In other words, were there or or what were the most exciting kind of project altering moments of discovery? Um,
0: It took me, I I was thinking about this the other day. It took me, I think, a total of 17 years to get this book done from the time I first started working on it until I finally put it to bed. And most of that time was spent finding time and finding funding to go to these archives to look at this material and sometimes even to find if this material existed. Um, I went to, I think it was somewhere close to 20 different archives in the process of doing this book, Mm -hmm. um, which was, I just, I find it really fun. I really love archival research. Um, It's great. I'm not, I'm not great at it. I'm not one of these people who, you know, is a professional uh, at doing this kind of thing, but uh, I really enjoy it. Um, And your question about how do you know what you're looking for is a really good one, because that's often the hardest thing. Mm -hmm. You think you have a question, uh, you've got a specific thing you're looking for, and you discover that whatever specific thing you're looking for, it just doesn't exist.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs>
0: uh, the The thing that I looked for the longest, and it doesn't even end up taking a huge amount of space in the book, is I really wanted to find Voice of America radio programs. And I imagined that there had to be some kind of recordings of them, or at least they had to have the radio scripts for them because they were really important. Right. The, the Foreign Service really um, put a high priority on this stuff, and I could not find them, and I went to the National Archives over and over again, and I was consulting with the archivists there who are really quite helpful, and we couldn't find anything. I knew they had to exist. And they even took me back in some of these kind of like, I don't know if you've seen the end of that the Raiders of the Lost Ark movie where they stick the archive It was just like these endless shelves of things. Um, and we couldn't find anything. Yeah. And I ended up going to the Library of Congress, seeing if I could find something there. Of course, I couldn't find something. And eventually I went into their microfiche room and in a misfiled box, I found a catalog for microfiches that was not supposed to be the thing I was looking for, but when I checked them out, they were exactly what I was looking for, and it was this kind of eureka moment of, I've been looking for this for five years, and I just stumbled across it by accident.
1: Wow, wow. Okay, so these are the scripts that were microfished.
0: Yeah, exactly. They were all of the scripts, and then the Voice of America and the United States Information Agency did audience surveys where they would go to these foreign countries and do focus groups about what you wanted to hear about the United States and what was effective and what wasn't effective. And so it was just amazing Mm -hmm. stuff, and it took me forever to find. (laughs) Uh, And then there was... um, Another thing that I sought out forever and was never able to get my hands on um, were memos that would have been sent by the Department of State to Foreign Service postings about, here's the books we want you to order, and here's why we want you to order them. And I know that they existed because I saw references to these discussions, Uh, but I couldn't find them, and I couldn't find them, and I found some – some things that were that looked like them, they didn't end up being them. And then I uh, was poking through some catalog in the National Archives, and I found a reference to what it, what should have been that. And when I tried to check it out, they just came out and they said, uh, "We can't give you this national security reasons." <laughs> it was wow. <laughs> a list of books to be ordered for an Italian Foreign Service library in 1950, and apparently it was still right. such explosive stuff they couldn't let me look at it. <laughs> I even filed a FOIA on it. Never heard back.
1: Wow. <laughs> well, maybe for the twentieth uh, anniversary reissue of your book, you know,
0: <laughs> maybe finally.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so that's great. Especially the um, radio scripts. It, it, you know, one thing that struck me in reading your book was um, many points of similarity between um, the BBC Empire Service, specifically, I, I suppose, and the um, the Voice of America, but. Especially the scripts being on on microfilm, which is not that fun to work with. I think. No, it's not. yeah, it's really hard on your eyes after a while. Um, so that's yet another one. So um, one thing I want to ask you about is your your training as as a literary scholar, and yet you know painting plays a crucial role in the story you unfold here. Um, can you tell us what it was like to write on visual art? You know, I just, I don't
0: have the vocabulary to do any kind of formalist discussion of visual art. I wasn't trained in that way, and I don't know how to talk about it. And so fortunately, there have been a lot of scholars who have discussed these painting exhibitions. And and what we're talking about are uh, exhibitions of American painting that the State Department and the United States Information Agency would assemble and then send abroad to foreign countries or to world's fairs or things like that over the course of the 1950s. And one of them, which is called Advancing American Art, which went abroad in 1947 and then got uh, unceremoniously yanked back when conservatives were <laughs> how awful it was, um, has right. been written about a lot. And they actually okay. – um, They remounted that show a couple years ago where they got all the paintings back together and they sent it on tour and they sent it to Indiana and they sent it to Auburn and Oklahoma and places like that. So you could actually see what it looked like, but um, there's been a lot of writing on, on those shows, and so I was able to talk about it as from the um, perspective of it being a kind of rhetorical act. What did okay. it mean to put these kind of paintings and these kind of painters together, and how were they framed by, for instance, the catalog? Um, mm-hmm. But. But you're absolutely right. I can't really get into talking about what makes an Arthur Dove painting so successful. I just, I I don't know how to talk about that. And so I tried to stay away from that because I didn't want to overreach what I can actually accomplish. Um, The only two paintings I really discuss in any length whatsoever are this great painting by Jack Levine that was uh, pretty controversial when they stuck it in the 1959 uh, Moscow Exposition uh, which was where the, the kitchen debate happened. And it was this painting of these three kind of uh, fat, obnoxious generals. Um, <laughs> and it was an anti-war painting. And somebody right. brought it to Eisenhower's attention, and Eisenhower said, well, I don't love it, but you know, we'll send it abroad. And then the only other yeah. one I discuss is Yasuo Kuniyoshi's uh, Circus Girl uh, Resting, which was the painting that, uh, that caused President Truman to say, you know, I... <laughs> I don't know much about art, but if that's art, I'm a hot and tot, which is both offensive and racist.
1: (laughs) Right. (laughs) In modernist studies, we often talk about doing more interdisciplinary work, right? But literary studies remains dominant. But your book is refreshing in part because you range so widely. Before we get into more detail, though, I think we should unpack your main term here, which is Cold War modernism. You developed this term to describe the new rhetorical framing of modernism in the 1950s. So help us review for a second. What was modernism like before this reframing? And what did it look like when presented as Cold War modernism?
0: That's a, that's really the question at the heart of the book. And... Um, uh, you know, you just were talking to to Paul Moore in your last podcast, and so you know that the question, mm-hmm. the definitional question of what is modernism is something that modernist scholars have, you know, worried and fretted about for decades, and now we finally decided, like, uh, what's the point in discussing that anymore? Um,
1: let right. open,
0: <laughs> open the category up. Yeah. But what I'm interested in is less what modernism was in these different time periods than how was it perceived by the public. Mm-hmm. Um, and my argument is that Prior to about the Second World War, uh, the American public, and I don't mean art critics and journalists, I mean kind of the broad American public, understood modernism to be kind of uh, a little bit scary. It had certainly intellectual resonances, but also it was vaguely anarchistic, it was communistic, it was all sorts of kind of bad things. Uh, and it was never particularly well defined, but it was just kind right. of dangerous and antinomian. Um, Later on in the 60s, looking back, people like Irving Howe and and Lionel Trilling define it as as kind of rebellion for its own sake or um, nihilistic, antinomian. Those are the terms that get thrown around. Um, I don't Mm -hmm. think it's as highly developed as that in the public mind in the 20s and 30s. But the public really does see it as something dangerous, scary, threatening. So... In the 50s, my argument is that – and this goes hand-in-hand with a lot of things that some other scholars have been saying Mm – modernism starts getting redefined uh, as to be primarily about style um, and about technique, where it had been understood – In terms of its aims, uh, overthrowing traditional means of representation, rejecting bourgeois values, rejecting democratic capitalistic certainties through the 20s and 30s. In the 40s and the 50s, they start to say, no, it's really about stream of consciousness narration. It's about free verse. It's about abstraction. It's about the stripping of ornamentation. Um, And this is is one of the reasons why I thought it was interesting to start with painting is because a lot of this vocabulary gets developed in the discussion of the visual arts in the 20s and 30s. Um, And I talk a lot in the book about a guy named Alfred Barr, who was a curator at the Museum of Modern Art. Uh, And he was a real pioneer in kind of defining what modern art and modernism meant and in showing that this was a common thread. These kind of stylistic and technical innovations were a common thread, not just in painting, but in painting and sculpture and then also consumer product design and music. And then the literary scholars latch onto this and show that that there is a kind of modernist feeling going across into the literary arts. That gets Mm -hmm. really elaborated in the forties. Um, and my argument that I'm making is that as it loses its, um, its teleology as a kind of revolutionary movement and it becomes a technical movement, it, then you can refill it with political meaning Mm -hmm. and the the political meaning with which it was refilled is an endorsement of freedom and individualism. And those become the key terms in my book that it, we lose the antinomianism, and it becomes a defense of freedom and individualism.
1: Right. So one of the major ways it was reframed was to say, however challenging and unpalatable modernism is, it's also a sign that artists in the U.S. have the freedom to do whatever they want, right? Exactly, yes. Uh, and the, what
0: the Soviets did, uh, did us a great solid at the time by not only developing, and they developed the socialist realist philosophy but in the mid-30s. Um mm-hmm. But they started to enforce it, and they started to enforce it publicly, not only uh, within the Soviet Union, but also in these uh, cultural diplomatic magazines they had. And so um, there was – there's one called the Vox Journal, I think, or Vox Bulletin, and Vox is a a Russian acronym for the – basically their foreign um, Mm – their cultural diplomacy organization – And they would write these long and turgid art theory articles basically about how modernism was decadent and bourgeois individualist and uh, art should be tendentious. And it's, you know, it's very Leninist arguments. And so it makes very easy for our uh, foreign policy establishment, but also these these kind of independent leftist organizations and groups like the New York intellectuals to say, look, this is just pure Stalinism. And so modernism is, is its opposite number. And the two kind of define themselves against each other and draw their power through this negative definition, the terms uh, modernism and socialist realism.
1: Right. And it also becomes a defense of the free market, in that artists are free to create challenging modernist works. And then in turn, the public is then also free to buy them or not as they see fit. Um, And as you point out, when it came to modernist painting, major corporations bought up these works and, and thereby contributed to their economic value.
0: Yeah, that's what's really interesting to me. And that was one of the things I really didn't know is how in starting in the 40s, a lot of corporations and uh, like La Tosca Pearls and Pepsi and IBM had started developing their own corporate collections of art. And certainly it was a it was a kind of prestige move. It was a way to show that capitalism wasn't just Philistine, which is an accusation that was often thrown at it, uh, but right. I also think it was some of these people who were involved in these in these corporations wanted to be cultured, and so they wanted to collect art. Um, the the most important name in this, he wasn't a corporate executive, but it was Nelson Rockefeller. And he was so closely connected with the corporate world, but he was also basically the founder of the Museum of Modern Art. Uh, and he was also a cultural diplomat. He was one of the first um, right. big-time cultural diplomats. So he he brings together the the world of modernist painting, at least, and the corporate world and the cultural diplomatic world um, in this time period. It's, it is really interesting. And so starting in the 50s, the State Department assembles a couple of these corporations collect art shows that they put on tour, where they take um, pretty avant-garde paintings from some of these corporate collections, assemble them, and then send them abroad to say, look at what our corporations are collecting.
1: Right. So one of your early warnings is that on the one hand you're talking about appropriation of modernism by the government but on the other hand through the complexities of the archive you show us how divided the government often was at least as it functioned with separate divisions that may or may not work together
0: yeah and um I was a, I was a, you know, a, a junior leftist revolutionary back when I was, you know, a teenager and all that, and I was absolutely certain that, uh, you know, during the Reagan years, so it was bad, uh, and I was absolutely certain that the, this kind of entity called the government was a, a unitary uh, force that was working. You know, all of its branches were working in concert with each other, and if there is one thing this research project has taught me is that the United States government is so unbelievably vast and. Its parts are often working at cross-purposes with each other, or even if they're not working at cross-purposes with each other, the right hand and the left hand have no idea what each other are doing. Right. Um, So it's hard to say that the United States government was engaging in any kind of a concerted or unified effort because even in some of these art exhibitions or the book translation programs that I talk about, we've got all sorts of different branches of government and even offices within the uh, administrative side, within the executive branch, uh, who are contradicting each other, who are getting in each other's way, who are thwarting each other. And that's simply offices not knowing what each other are doing. And then on top of that, you'll have these personal rivalries. Um, So during the the painting thing in the 1947 exhibition of the uh, Advancing American Art, you had people people in Congress who just hated Truman personally, who would go after this thing as a way to embarrass Truman or as a way to embarrass... um, Secretary of State Marshall or Secretary Mm of State Atchison, because they just hated the guys. And so we sometimes (laughs) see that kind of thing. Uh, The story that I have told sometimes about archival research is – I've the, the, I, I got my first real experience of the romantic sublime, of the kind of like massiveness of something. When I got my introduction to going to the National Archives, and the first time you go in there, an archivist will take you into this room. And it's, you know, it's a room, a good sized room. It's like the size of a classroom. And it has floor to ceiling okay. shelves all the way around on all four walls. And on all of these shelves are a bunch of three ring binders. So hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of three-ring binders, probably over a thousand of them. And I asked the guy, um, "So, is this a kind of catalog of catalogs of the National Archives? Well, this—if I look in these binders, can I find everything?" He says, "This is just the catalog of documents for three of the administ- of three of the executive branch um, administrations. This is Agriculture, and I forget what the Commerce and Treasury, just for the second Roosevelt administration." <laughs>
1: Wow, <laughs> like, it was
0: just, I cannot imagine the, the amount of paper and information in that. So uh, the idea that they could keep all of this stuff straight and have everybody be marching in the same direction. Um, this research project showed me that uh, even if they'd wanted to, they couldn't have done it.
1: Let's dig down into some of the chapters here to see how some of these bigger things play out on a more specific level. One of the most intriguing stories is of a little magazine called Encounter. This was the publication of the Congress for Cultural Freedom. And Stephen Spender was hired as one of the editors. He's known as a figure connected to, you know, T.S. Eliot, E.M. Forster, Virginia Woolf, and other modernist luminaries. And then there was also an American editor, Irving Kristol, right? So how did Encounter try to recruit European intellectuals to the side of the U.S.?
0: Encounter's a really interesting example of... How culture, how this, this cultural diplomacy program was shared between governmental agencies and private agencies, and sometimes they didn't want to work together. Uh, as, as you, as you know, Encounter was a magazine that was published by the Congress for Cultural Freedom, and the Congress for Cultural Freedom is relatively well known. It was started in 1950 uh, as a group of independent European intellectuals, uh, and they met in, in Berlin. Uh, which was you know the West Berlin, which was still surrounded by the Soviet sector. It was still occupied Germany at the time. Right. And it was right in the at the start of the Korean War and and also a kind of crackdown in East Germany on freedom of expression. And so these European intellectuals and there were some Americans involved in there as well, got together to kind of stand up for cultural freedom. Well, it turned out in some research that people have done, you know, since the sixties, but have have consistently been unearthing new things about this. Um, This organization was started with the money and the impetus from both the Central Intelligence Agency in the United States and also the Information Research Division of the British um, Intelligence Services, which is basically one of their uh, covert actions groups back then. And they wanted to get this group together to recruit leftist and ostensibly independent European intellectuals to be anti-Soviet, to be anti-Stalinist. So they get this group together, and they publish a magazine in Italy, and they publish a magazine in French. And eventually, they want an English-language magazine. And they're they're looking for editors who are going to be sufficiently independent, but also um, share their philosophical orientations. And they want a Brit, mm-hmm. and so they get Stephen Spender. And Spender, as you note, was was a younger member of the Bloomsbury crowd. He was also friends uh, and closely linked with uh, Louis McNeese um, and... Um, Isherwood and uh, Cecil Day Lewis, uh, people like that, the McSpawn Day group, they sometimes got called. Uh, and they, they in turn, were then closely linked to T.S. Eliot. And on the American side, they brought in Irving Kristol, who was a kind of young whippersnapper, you know, uh, rough and tumble Brooklyn Jew. And he had been in charge <laughs> of Commentary Magazine. Uh, and in Commentary magazine, he'd written a, a, which was aimed at kind of at the time, it was aimed at uh, Jewish intellectuals who were leaning a bit to the left. And he wrote an article that made him famous, where he basically defended McCarthy at the time.
1: So they brought him in, and he and
0: Spender shared the editorship, and they did not get along well. Um, the kind of uh, the, the the gay Oxford poet intellectual and the then the Brooklyn Jew did not get along. Um, right. So they ran this magazine. And in 1966, uh, the New York Times and then a lefty American student magazine called Ramparts broke the story, finally, that uh, the Congress for Cultural Freedom and and with it, Encounter, had been um, cemented by the CIA for their entire existence. Uh, And that uh, the suggestion was, so, of course, they were CIA puppets. Uh, And people just jumped ship, and people disavowed their association with it, and Spender swore up and down. He'd never known anything about it. Um, it, bec- it People then, after that time, and it's been f- almost 50 years now that people have been talking about it, have said that the CCF and Encounter as well should be entirely discredited because of this uh, fruit-of-the-poison tree argument, that because right. the original founding came from CIA, everything must be CIA-tainted. Um, and must have been designed specifically to serve American interests. Um, What I've come up with in my research, and a couple other people, including a guy named Jason Harding at Durham in England, who's just finishing a book on Encounter, is that, well, yeah, the CIA tried, but if you actually read the magazine, there's very little in there that works with with CIA desires at the time. Uh, what Spender and Crystal managed to do is make a pretty damn good cultural magazine. Uh, And Mm -hmm. it was a leading cultural and literary magazine in England. And it was also popular in the United States for 15 years until it got discredited. Uh, And it did stick around. It it stopped publication, I believe in 1991. Um, But it, it, it's not the most, you know, when you go back and read these, old volumes of it. Uh, It's not the most exciting magazine. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not partisan review, which I think still a lot of partisan review holds up and is fun to read, uh, encounters a little drier. Um, But the other thing that that comes out is it doesn't feel like um, pro-American propaganda in any way. Um, So it's hard for me to write it off as that.
1: Um, Right, right. So one of the criticisms even at the time before people knew about the CIA involvement was that the literature was top notch and forward thinking Raja Rao published a story in the second installment, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And they had Virginia Woolf in it was obviously she was dead by then, but they were re- reprinting some of for stories. Right. Um, and then there's some good young poets. There's some of the, the movement poets like a, um, uh, Tom Jones, I believe. And, um, uh, Sitwells are in there. Donald um, mm-hmm. Davie's got poems in there. So they're they're working with the the good established younger British poets. They're not publishing anybody who's particularly avant garde. Uh, but right. they've got they are got they've got real writers
1: writing for them. One criticism at the time was that Encounter was an unsuccessful mashup of quality literature and uh, opinion pieces that were generally from American contributors. Is that right?
0: Yes, yes. The opinion pieces did tend to be uh, – and it's because Crystal was interested in politics and Spender was interested in literature. So the opinion pieces did tend to be more by Americans, and they had a kind of n- uh, non-communist left orientation to them. Uh, they were they were all very anti-Soviet and anti-Stalinist. Um, unlike in a magazine like Partisan Review, you don't, there's not that Trotskyist orientation either. Uh, and the frankly the the opinion pieces don't really hold up they they are the least interesting to read um right okay they're kind of the, they date i guess yeah yeah uh but what apart from its its political ramifications, what I find really interesting and what I detail in the book in my argument about modernism about encounter is is it's a kind of tombstone for modernism. Right. Where Spender and his fellow British intellectuals use the magazine, especially in the book review sections, to kind of mourn how fallen the 50s are and, and, and to really memorialize and exalt Eliot and Joyce and Wolfe and the generation of 1920 as basically the high watermark of British literature and of world literature. Uh, right. And so the argument that I make in the chapter is this is where this idea of modernism as uh, purely technique gets elaborated um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. where this canon of, the, of high modernism that's created by the people who were the young acolytes of the high modernists, the people like Spender, this is where that canon gets um, erected. It's one of the places where this canon gets erected.
1: right? On the one hand, it's looking back and wishing that things were still as innovative and interesting. But it's also simultaneously bolstering the Cold War ideology of the West by insisting on the artist or writer as a solitary genius, right?
0: Exactly, exactly. And there's a lot of... um Opinion pieces, art critical pieces, sneering at establishment writers, sneering at writers whose uh, primary intention is to um, make a political argument with their writing. Um, Mm. Socialist realists, socialist realism gets sneered at a lot. And even um, Western writing, such as, you know, John Osborne and Look Back in Anger, that seems to have this modernist feel of, you know, the earlier image of modernism as an antinomianism when you get contemporary literature that has that like the angry young men literature they want to put that down because it's not doing the the formal things that they want to praise about modernism
1: right okay um so one of the amazing things you uncover is um the state department's handling of william faulkner (laughs) <laughs> um, and you have some funny you have some funny stories of Faulkner abroad, if you will. Um, so can you tell us about you know what he was doing and, and, and how that worked?
0: Yeah, and I'm not the the first one who's looked at this. There's a scholar at Indiana named Deborah Cohen who's done a lot with this, but it is really fun to look at some of these documents. Um, when Faulkner was given the Nobel Prize uh, in 1950, this, uh, this, the Swedes really wanted him to come over. To Sweden, and so the, the Swedish ambassador of the United States actually called him up at home, and he said, "You know, Mister Faulkner, will you please um, and accept your prize in Stockholm?" And Faulkner said, "You know, I've got a farm, and and the harvest isn't going to harvest itself, so I got to hang around here." <laughs> but of course, he wasn't really harvesting. But I think he wanted right. to go on a hunting trip, frankly. Uh, But eventually, with some intervention, both from the Department of State and especially from a woman, a really interesting woman who has been a little bit lost to history but should be remembered better. Her name is Muna Lee. She was a Mississippi woman, and she was uh, one of the cultural diplomats in the Department of State. She was also a poet, and she was married to uh, Luis Munoz Marin, who was the first governor of Puerto Rico. She just was doing all these interesting things. She called Faulkner up. And she bonded with him over how their great grandpappies had served in the Confederate Army together or something like that and was able to convince him to go to Stockholm and and accept the prize. And most importantly, to make that famous speech, Uh, his Nobel Prize address about man will not only um, uh, endure, he will prevail Mm -hmm. that uh, I mean, that turns on the the radar of everybody in the State Department because you can read it as being a defense of the same artistic freedom, uh, individualism, and innovation argument that the cultural cultural diplomacy establishment has been making uh, all of these years. So, he goes and gets his Nobel Prize, and he comes back, and then he gets kind of enthused about this. And for the next few <laughs> years, he becomes uh, a really willing and eager participant in this cultural diplomacy thing. And they, they send him to a conference in Brazil. The Brazilians were mad because we wouldn't let somebody, we wouldn't give somebody a visa to the United States because he was a leftist. I forget who it was. And um, so, they say, well, we really want Faulkner to come to this writer's conference and the state department's able to persuade him to go to that even though robert frost is coming as well he doesn't like robert frost he grumbles about that <laughs> uh, they send him to a, a seminar in nagano japan where he's just a huge hit and then they start sending him all over the globe and he does in the end he does seven or eight trips and he becomes a really good cultural ambassador for the united states and that he gets up and he people just love him and respect him and, and i'm sure you know that he's In the 50s, certainly, he's more influential abroad than he is at home. Um, Right, right. Latin American writers, in particular, just see him as the greatest American writer. And so to have him there is just huge. Um, And so he's a really successful ambassador. The problem is, um, and you know, you may have heard this, he was a terrible drunk. (laughs) <laughs> and so he was just a handful to deal with when he would show up because they never knew what state he was going to be in. And he would get sloppy drunk and he would be either be obnoxious at a uh, at a reception. And I think in Japan, his first day in Japan, he'd gotten sloshed on the plane over there. And so he was so obnoxious <laughs> with the American ambassador to Japan that the ambassador said, get him on a plane and send him home now. Uh, they hit him. He sobered up and he ended up doing really well. but. Um, Good. and the thing that uh, it and speaking about documents that you're always looking for and can never find. Uh, A document that both uh, Deborah Cohen and I have been looking for and never been able to actually find is um, there was a State Department staffer named uh, Leon Pecan, and he was in charge of Faulkner when Faulkner was in Japan, and he came up with strategies of how exactly you handle him so that he's happy and (laughs) everybody else is happy. And apparently, he wrote up a little brochure for places about exactly what to do, how much booze you give him, where you have to babysit him, what you do. And circulated it to a State Department post, and so both uh, Professor Cohen and I have seen a lot of references to it and paraphrases of Picone's guidelines, but we've never actually been able to find right. the damn thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, he was uh, he was both really successful when he would visit there, and the the um, postmortems that the State Department would write up about what was the press coverage like and what did people say in the reception were just. Glowing, and they loved the fact they brought him over there. But he was always a big problem for his hosts because, you know, he was right. sadly enough, he was just a terrible self destructive alcoholic. <laughs>
1: Right, right. And another thing that they appreciated about him, I think, right, and tell me if I have this right, is that, you know, they didn't even really have to give him talking points. If anything, you know, he staged a more kind of elaborate defense of the U.S. than even the State Department had as a kind of um, uh, prepared um, position, right?
0: Exactly. And, uh, and much more eloquent. I mean, the, the man had a way with language, obviously, and so he could get right. up and he could talk in really intelligent and appealing terms about things like freedom and individualism. And for instance, when he got a, he got an award from the Greek Academy in Athens, um, and just did this brilliant job of linking, um, this Hellenic tradition of freedom of thought to basically the contemporary moment in a way that said, without ever having to make a kind of political argument in a way that said like the West is on the right side of this historical conflict. Uh, and, and our beliefs and values go back to the ancient Greeks. Um, he, was just, he was fantastic at that. Uh, and the other thing that a lot of the State Department posts were initially leery about, and then he showed himself to be good at, was the one thing that the Soviets had as a powerful argument against us was racism and prejudice and segregation. And when you bring a guy over who's from Mississippi of all places, uh, you're opening yourself up to, to a lot of attacks. And Faulkner was able both to no, I'm not saying defend his home territory, but, but to distance himself from that aspect of it while still maintaining uh, the dignity of the South in a really interesting way, mm-hmm. um, to the degree that a lot of the Soviet, and, and it wouldn't just be Soviet charges, but also kind of local communist parties and places he would go, uh, the the arguments were, if not um, voided of their power, they were certainly blunted.
1: Right, nice. So, in another chapter, you talk about these um, reading reading rooms. I guess that were that were set up through the State Department or or through uh, some kind of government um, subsidiary, yeah,
0: it right? Was, um, it was through the State Department, uh, and we still have these. Okay. Um, if if uh, you've ever been abroad, a lot of your listeners may have been abroad, and there's United States uh, libraries and reading rooms in a lot of major cities in foreign countries, uh, and we started putting those up in 1940s, and the first one was in Mexico City. And again, that was uh, the um, agency that, re- that Nelson Rockefeller was running, and that the effort here was to you know, put the best face of America forward for Latin Americans, who at the time were being romanced by the Germans. But in mm-hmm. the 50s, we started aggressively opening these reading rooms and libraries in Europe and in Asia, as a way to get American books over there, uh, and American magazines, they were magazines were especially popular and people who lived in those cities could come and they could, uh, read these books and they could look at our magazines. And it was, it was a, a kind of friendly, I wouldn't say person to person because it was books to person, but it was a way for us right. to get, um, a curated to use a anachronistic word, uh, a, a curated view of America to foreign populations in a way that felt like it wasn't coming from official government mouthpieces. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the challenge for the people who were running these was to uh, strike a balance between a real, f- a real free and fair and whole picture of the United States. And so including books about the United States that might criticize some of our uh, more unsavory aspects, and especially including the racial situation uh but that would also in the aggregate forward the argument that we wanted to make, which is that we're a we're a free society we're a society where the individual is valued above all else, and we're a society that while we have problems um we have internal mechanisms that ensure that those problems will be eventually solved um it was it's a uh melioristic argument um it's not mm-hmm. a kind of uh there was nothing wrong we're a perfect nation we were uh, it was very happy to admit that we have some flaws but these books that we have in our libraries will show you that we have that our society is strong enough to admit these flaws to ourselves and we have mechanisms to uh to
1: solve those problems great and and this worked in tandem with subsidies for translations which worked Not just through the reading rooms, but through partnerships with foreign publishers. This way, American books were published by a local press, but the translation and even publishing costs were paid for by the U.S. Uh, Do I have that right?
0: Exactly. Yeah. Sometimes uh, we had books that we really wanted to get over there for whatever reason, and we, we would tell a foreign publisher, uh, we would like to get this. An example I have that, uh, one of these, uh, ex foreign service, um, agents gave me is a, 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 just a basic anthology of american literature and they wanted uh, this was in belgrade and they wanted Serbo-Croatian readers to have this and so he went to this publisher and he says you know we'll pay the translation costs we'll pay your production costs we just want you to publish this book we want you to publish it under your name we don't want any evidence that this is an american product and we just want you to get it out to this to your yugoslav public uh and it was a way for us to get these books out and make them look like they weren't coming from the United States government and get them in the hands of right. foreign readers. Uh at the same time we would we had a kind of market based initiative through which American publishers could say, Hey, I want to publish this book in Poland and I'm gonna just export it there. Uh we had a wide variety of these programs to get books into the hands of foreign readers because the um the executive branch were absolutely convinced that the most effective way to persuade foreign populations was through books. Like it was more mm-hmm. effective than the other major uh, medium would have, been, would have been the radio, but they were convinced right. that it was, it was more powerful, it reached a more influential audience, and it was more long-lasting to do it through books.
1: Great. Well, since you mentioned radio, I'm um, I'm curious to have you um, talk a little bit about the Voice of America. So. How do you see radio, you know, especially The Voice of America, contributing to Cold War modernism in a way that's um, different than maybe the print publications or the art exi- exhibitions?
0: Yeah, so the so the radio, the Voice of America is your your comparison of it with um, the BBC's Empire Service is is absolutely spot on. Um, this it was um, in foreign languages, so it would be in. You know, Spanish or Polish or whatever, and right. it would it would have programming that was geared at that local audience, but it was often about you know these topics that we wanted to get out there, and so the vast majority of Voice of America programming was not about the arts; it was about current events, it was about uh, news and politics, and even sports and things like that. But on the occasions when they would cover art, they they echoed to some degree the Cold War modernist argument that this kind of experimental art is proof positive of the superiority of a society based on freedom and individualism and experimentation. But because it was aimed at a much more general audience, many of whom were not interested in experimental art at all, not the intellectuals and artists, uh, they didn't touch on uh, experimental modernist art to anywhere near the degree that the art program did or the magazines did or all that. At the same time, they did talk about it. And so they, you know, when Faulkner would come to town, they would have little programs about, you know, here's why Faulkner is important. They had one program that they circulated. It was a recording of a discussion between um, Irving Howe and Ralph Ellison, uh, talking about why the Faulkner story, The Bear, is so great. And at the same time, talking about why Faulkner's not actually a racist. So, uh, right. <laughs> but they would also cover um, through the Voice of America. They would cover modernist-ish works that had a lot of popular appeal. So things like uh, Porgy and Bess, the Gershwin opera, was very popular. It toured Eastern Europe and even went to uh, the Soviet Union, and it was. A very popular show for people to come to, and so they would cover that, and they would also talk about why it was a work of experimental art, um, and it, they would detail mm-hmm. that. And so it it wasn't, you know, it's not Jackson Pollock, it's not William Faulkner, right. but it is to also an example of free experimentation of using folk forms and high cultural forms in experimental ways, uh, and one one of the The only times that they used kind of actual experimental writers was a program where they would approach um, well-known writers. And among them were Faulkner and William Carlos Williams and Wallace Stevens and Marianne Moore. And they would ask Mm -hmm. them just to talk about their hometowns as a way to (laughs) – so they could connect with – because everybody likes talking about their hometowns. I don't care where you're from. Everybody likes to talk about your hometown. (laughs) And and so they would have William Carlos Williams talking about the – pleasures of rutherford new jersey or marianne moore talking about <laughs> brooklyn as a small town or uh yeah. wallace stevens talking about hartford and um they weren't talking about their art and they weren't talking about the experimental nature of modernism or modernist poetry or anything but again it was a way of smoothing out these people of of voiding the kind of any revolutionary content from
1: modernism right But while also trying to borrow some of their cultural capital, if you will, in part because the book draws so extensively from archival finds, I'm wondering if you can, even if it's quickly, flesh out some of the theoretical or or philosophical inspirations for your study since you uncover so much new material here, a lot of your work in the book is to introduce us to these great finds. But I was wondering if you could take a step back from even your introduction and conclusion and, and talk about your bigger inspirations.
0: Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I have such a hard time getting out from the shadow of Raymond Williams. Um, he, his argument about the development of the what Eagleton calls the ideology of the aesthetic is, is so compelling to me, so persuasive to me, that um, I, have a, I have a hard time finding any space between where I am and where he is. And so <laughs> his argument about how modernism started as an antinomian, anti-bourgeois movement defined itself by its failure to succeed among mass audiences, and then eventually became aestheticized. Uh, I'm, I'm very much echoing what he has to say uh, and you know, how Eagleton then uses him as well. And also to some mm-hmm. degree, uh, Peter Berger, whose um, theory of the avant-garde is also pretty influential to me. Uh, I have trouble Creating any space between me and them because their arguments are so uh, are so powerful. Um, I do think, though, th- th- one of the things that I find at the, as I got to the end of it is I really wondered how how did we get past that? How did we get to the moment of, of postmodernism? And I am—I'm uh, a book historian. Uh, I'm trained as a book historian. My dissertation director was is a nineteenth-century bibliographer, and so I'm very much a, an empiricist, a kind of material culture person. And so, uh, in the conclusion of my book, uh, I'm making the argument, and again, I may be totally full of it right here, but there's something about modernism to me that is fundamentally textual, that is fundamentally print, and. When you know Cold War modernism has its heyday, uh, it gets redefined, it becomes basically a style for consumer products, uh, right. and then it fades, uh, and it's replaced, and it's replaced by postmodernism. And, and I, I'm really thinking that – and this is probably an overly simplistic argument – but I'm really thinking that there's something about the move to from a culture of text and a culture of print to a culture of image and electronic reproduction and filmic reproduction and motion – um, that we get into in postmodernism, and we get into in 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 Warhol and in Sontag's writings, um, and that's a kind of the theoretical argument that I'd like to explore a lot more because um, I, I the more I was looking at modernism and the more I think about modernism, even when we think about it uh, in film, uh, it feels like a text based epistemology. And so I don't, nice. I don't, yeah, I mean, that's like, the, that's like a, <laughs> a, a fetus of an idea it's, it's going, I don't know what's going to happen to it, but hopefully it's going to develop somewhere. Um, <laughs> you know, you get a book historian like me to theorize, we, we get a little lost. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I end up really coming from a, from a Raymond Williams and Eagleton uh, perspective uh, on my argument about about how, where modernism comes from and what its trajectory is and when, what happens to it as it gets aestheticized. Um, Cold war modernism for me is not the movement itself, but it's rather the, the rhetoric of how the art as a whole is framed. Um, right. Right. And so, yeah, my book is less a formal analysis than a, than I think a rhetorical analysis of, of creating an argument about modernism to a, a variety of
1: publics with a variety of purposes. Right, right. Well, I mean, one of the things that struck me, and I think, is so useful about your book is, I think this is true for other in other arts as well, but certainly in literary studies. You know, we struggle with the, the supposed break around 1945, right? And, and granted, this is kind of something that we've inherited and that we challenge and, and whatever else, but it still has some kind of force for a lot of people in terms of specialization and whatnot. And one thing that your book helps us see is a very different kind of post-45, right? A lot of times we think of post-45 as, like, the former peripheries are now central and, and everything else. And, um you know, that plays a, a part in what you're talking about here, but you're also interested in tracing what happens to canonical modernism when it's kind of forced through this new Cold War aperture, if you will.
0: Yeah, Um And I've been working on a piece um, on modernism in the MFA. Um, Lauren Glass, uh, who is someone else that uh, just is doing really fantastic work about this time period, and he's involved in the post-45 group, uh, is putting together an anthology of responses to um, McGurl's The Program Era. So I'm writing a piece Mm -hmm. about what happens to modernism in the 50s in the context of of writing programs and how do we understand it in that sense? Um, There's, for me, it comes down, it always comes down to institutions and and how do institutions such as universities and um, journals and intellectual circles help us define what modernism is, what modernism was, what literary movements are, and what their place, what their places are in the culture. Um, and so that's one of the things that I've tried to do in this book is is look at how a bunch of different institutions were working together in parallel, sometimes not quite in parallel, uh to achieve these ends. I don't know that's if that answered yeah, your question, think- Dan.
1: Yeah, yeah. No. It's it's uh it was, it was kind of a, a refreshing kind of new way to look at this, um, to, to look at this period. Um, I mean, e- even people who don't work that much in, in kind of post 45 material, I mean, of course, one's always thinking, you know, um, what happened to this stuff? You know, even if you focus in the early 20th century, um, you know, you, you have to kind of create your own narratives of, of, of how it relates to our contemporary moment, right? And, um, and the Cold War really, impacted it in a lot of, a lot of ways that you tease out and really, um, you know, help give us a more kind of robust understanding, I guess, um, because of your, um, thorough archival research, you know?
0: That's so kind of you to say
1: <laughs> <laughs> so um I like to uh end these by talking a little bit about your writing process um so so not uh not the content of the book but rather how you how you kind of made it or or typed it or whatever so what you know, what is your writing process like? Um, does it does it happen a little bit every day, or do you kind of write in chunks when you're not teaching? I had, um, like I said,
0: I, I worked on this book for off and on for 17 years, and it was mostly because you know I have a day job, and so I had to do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, at Duquesne, I was running the first year writing program for about 10 years, and so that takes a lot of time. So mostly, it would be done. In fits and spurts, and in summers, um, I would get a I would get like a, a chapter idea, and then I would say I need to visit you know archive A, B, and C, and I would apply for a couple mm-hmm. grants, and I would be yeah. able to go do that, and then would write that up. Um, but I ended up getting the greatest gift. Well, I have kids, so it's the second greatest gift in the world. <laughs>
1: um,
0: I was lucky enough to land an NEH fellowship for a year. Uh, to finish the book, and I had the vast majority of the research done, and so it was a—I didn't have to work for a year. So I would take my kids to school, and I would come home, and I would write all morning. Um, wow, nice! It was, and it was—it enabled me to get the book done. But uh, yeah, since I mean, I—I I don't know how the hell I got that, or stumbled into that, or just got incredibly lucky. Um, ordinarily, I—I I try to write. Um, I, I try to block off one day during the week. Um, I get, I'm a department chair, so I have to be in my office a fair amount, but I do try to block off one day out of the week where I stay at home and I work on my writing, and I really try to be disciplined about it. Mm-hmm. Um, get up and you know, take my kids to school and then work for three or four hours, and, and that's, about as, that's about as long as I can write, three or four hours. Then I'm kind of tapped out. And my brain hurts, and so i got to stop that. Yeah. But uh, but I try yeah. to do that. <laughs> um, I do try to do that once a week. Um, when I was a graduate student, I I made the mistake of following the kind of like, in, when inspiration strikes, you just work until you can't work anymore. And so I would write frantically for two weeks and then do nothing for three months, and that just wasn't a good way of right. doing it. I read it uh, uh, when I a few years ago. I read the saddest book in the world, which is the diaries of John Cheever. Uh, that's just the most okay. interesting book ever. But one one nice thing I pulled from that is he would uh, he would get up in the morning in his apartment in New York City, and he would put on his suit and he would go down the stairs or down in the elevator with everybody else when they were going down to catch the subway to work. And instead of leaving his building and going out and catching the subway, he had rented uh, basically a a superintendent's closet and he had an office (laughs) there and he would go in a suit and tie and he would write for four hours. He would come up for lunch and he would come back and write. And then he would go back in his apartment with his family and at five o'clock and he just treated it like a job and he dressed up like a job. And uh, I can't do that, but I think that there's something (laughs) he said for that as a, as a means of, producing
1: so i asked you earlier about your philosophical or theoretical inspirations but do you have a favorite academic writer what sticks out to you as great academic writing and why
0: wow um i mean i have i have writers that i really i just enjoy reading for their prose um Mm -hmm. And I have writers who I really admire for their insights. Um, and I'm just going to name a few in in modernist studies off the top of my head who I really like. I think Paul St. Moore, I love his writing. I really like uh, uh, Robert Spoo, who um, wrote a great book on copyright um, a few years back that
1: was just wonderful. Um, right. And they've both done really good work with the... <laughs> advising people about how to deal with, um, copyright as scholars. So it's very, very practical, um, recommendations that they've made, which you can find through quick Google search. Um, but yeah, they, they're, you know, both amazing scholars, but also, you know, one thing that is, that is so great about them is, is their, um, kind of willingness to help other scholars in a very practical sense. Yeah. And that's,
0: um, I mean, that's one of the nice things about this profession is there are so many people out there who are just excited to see people doing good work and they're willing to lend their time and their energy and their attention to younger scholars. And I benefited from that when I was but a young struggling graduate student when there was a couple of people mm-hmm. and Ira Adell, who's at the university of British Columbia was one of them who just kind of, and, and, uh, Jan Radway was another who just kind of gave me some attention and it was really, uh, helpful. And, um, and so I'm just so glad to see people like Kevin and Paul and many other people, my colleague, Linda Kinahan, who was the organizer of MSA this year, is another one who does that. Um, uh, it, it that makes me really happy, but to, Return to your question. I'm just going to mention the books, that I, the books that I'm reading right now that I'm so excited to start and I'm really enjoying um, is uh, – and I think his name is Kynaston, K-Y-N-A-S-T-O-N, but it's this series uh, Austerity Britain, Family Britain, and Modernity Britain, and it's a kind of – it's okay. a cultural history of Britain from 1945 until the election of Thatcher – And it Uh, is uh, one of the most amazing syntheses of primary research and secondary sources, and his own research into the um, just every aspect of culture across Great Britain. It's fantastic, Um, just and really like breezy and enjoyable to read. Um, So that's the thing I'm digging right now.
1: Okay, great. Well, Greg, congratulations again on the book. It's a fantastic book that helps us rethink modernism, but also rethink the post-45 period and the institutions of modernism. A lot of times we think about the Academy or or little magazines and your work deals with all of these things, but also gives us a new context in which to think about modernism playing out, uh, especially in the Cold War. So, once again, thanks for the book, and thanks for joining us on New Books and Literary Studies. Well, and
0: thank you, Dan, so much for having me on. It's been a great pleasure, and uh, I'm
1: I'm really pleased that you all are doing this as a service to the profession. It's just a wonderful thing you all are doing.